Welcome to Satellizer Conversations, an audio series that seeds encounters and conversations between people coming at topics from different perspectives and orientations, many of whom have never met before. The conversations are based on the lockdown online discursive rehearsal process of Satellizer, a dance for the gallery, a durational performance in which artists cooperate to maintain conversations whilst dancing over the course of a day as co-workers. These conversations reflect intimacies across distances that many of us have experienced through the whole of the project. I'm Janine Harrington, a UK-based artist and leader of the Satellizer project across live shows, the podcast series, and an online publication, satellizing.com. You can find more information about me by following at inside.i on Instagram or at www.janineharrington.com. Satellizer conversations are recorded and edited by Rowan Udall at Siobhan Davies Studios, with music composed by Jamie Forth and graphics created by John Philip Sage. The Satellizer project is produced by Zarina Rosshart and I. In this episode, Unspiralling, I was interested in a conversation with other artist practitioners about space and navigation as they relate to thinking and ways of knowing. My own choreographic work has developed through scores and structures which were based first on axes, then grids, circles and spirals. In all of these structures, there was a positioning of the audience or visitor as a co-agent in relation to the dance or performance that would unfold. My artistic journey has paralleled my understanding of my neurodivergence, and is, in some ways, a space to explore that. As I've developed ideas about cognition and dramaturgy in my own work, I've also been interested in how other makers understand their processes of handling information, social contexts, and the kinds of framing they find for their work in communities of knowledge gathering, and what different disciplines or ways of naming fields of study can offer to each other. The spiral is the underlying imprint of the Satellizer project, with the sense that there is always a way to enter, to offer, to gather, to move away and return. For On Spiralling, I invited Nicole Zizi, speaking from Boston, USA, and Charles Corino, speaking from Auckland, New Zealand, to join me to think together with, and inevitably through, spiralling. Nicole's research is grounded in her physics and architecture backgrounds and experience of neurodiversity. Charles's work explores the collision between Maori cosmology, New Zealand society and global cultures through performance, workshop and collaboration. In our spiralling conversation, we touch on architecture, cities, maps, being a visitor, language, land, observation, orientation, colonisation, neurodiversity, negotiation, wave-particle duality, and more. So, hello everyone. Um, My name's Janine Harrington, and I am an artist speaking from London. 
I am here with Nicole Zizi and Charles Carreno, and we this evening, this evening in London, um, and other other time zones that we're going to um, learn more about shortly, are going to be in a conversation which I have suggested we might call on spiraling. Um, the spiral for me is um, a form of great interest in my practice. And um, with each of you in different contexts over the last couple of years, I have felt um, a kind of different, but maybe um, like an interesting kind of uh, connection in talking through um, forms. And so we're gonna move through a conversation which I expect to absolutely be spiraling <laughs> in where it might go and what it might touch on. Um, so maybe before I say too much more about that and how the spiral is showing up in my work, it would be really nice if we each um, introduce ourselves. So I'm gonna pass to Charles, first of all. Hi. Hello. Atena uh, koutou. I just want to extend um, my greetings um, to you, Janine, and to Nicole. And I'm really happy to be here to uh, participate in this conversation about, I'm sure, many things. I'm uh, joining uh, this conversation from a city uh, called Tamaki Makoto, which is Auckland and Aotearoa, New Zealand. I'm, uh, my family are from the north of the North Island. Uh, we're from a harbour called Hokianganuia Kupe, which is a place uh, named after a very famed Polynesian navigator. Uh, if you were there, you can um, look to one side and there's a mountain range there. It's called um, Manawakayaya. And it's kind of like uh, a backbone of um, the tuara, the spine. Below there is uh, a mountain, which is our family and our um, group's mountains called Whakateri. And um, below that is a like the gathering place, one of the gathering places we call Marai. That particular place is called um, Tuhirangi, and it's a small village called Waima. And so that's a kind of an ancestral, one of the ancestral places of um, my family's place. Um, through this little mountain range is a, is a river called Waima, and that flows into that harbour of Okeana. And um, my parents, are both from this area, which is the area of the different mountains. They call it a house. So it's the Faritapu Rahiri, the sacred house of Rahiri. And underneath this house are all of um, our family and ancestors and things like that. We arrived in Aotearoa from our um, kind of collective canoe, which is called Ngātuhi Matawhāua. And um, my Father's name is, he's Charles as well. And my mother's name's Penelope. And um, mine is uh, Charles uh, Koroneho Koho Tene. And um, I've 
lived and grown up in, in Auckland in Tamaki Makaurau for most of my life. And I've been practicing as an artist um, since I was a teenager. So um, that's a little bit about me. Thank you, Charles. It's so amazing to hear um, such rich visual language around landscape and, and place. And as you were speaking, I was really looking at my space differently and, and feeling into that. I'm in um, a tower block and across from me is another tower block that I think of as, as the twin. And I'm also above and below many lives that are being led at the same time. And whilst I don't have um, the connections to land and place that are in any way uh, kind of the same as yours, there's something about how you start, you speak about uh, place and lineage and arrival um, that just changed how I'm seeing the landscape I'm in, which was such a wonderful experience at the very beginning of this conversation, um, which maybe is something that we're going to pick up on, actually. We'll see. But let's, uh, let's have Nicole introduce herself and, and say hi. Wait, where are you speaking from, Nicole? How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. I am coming at you from Boston, Massachusetts in the States. And um, speaking of place and landscape, I just finished my master's in architecture degree and I um, really enjoyed thinking about the urban landscape and how we move through that. So that could be an interesting parallel to think about. Um, but I am a postmodern contemporary dancer and choreographer. Um, I'm the artistic director and co-founder of a dance company here in Boston called Evolve Dynamics. I have my bachelor's in physics and my master's in architecture. Um, I'm, I'm just applied to my PhD, so we'll see if I get in, but that's my dream because I love school. <laughs> um, and right now I am a researcher at uh, the Center for Design within uh, the College of Arts, Media and Design at Northeastern University. And I am doing some research looking at how dance and embodiment can be used as a tool to create or to foster data curiosity and eventually data literacy. Um, and that's a really fun project. I really enjoy using dance in all aspects of my life. Um, and I had to write things down so I remember. I, I'm also neurodiverse. I just wanted to add that in there. And I think that's everything. Thank you. I, there's so many um, moments where I felt like could almost jump in or also on your introduction to pick up on space and architecture and physics and embodiment. Um, so I'll just say a tiny bit about my background also, because I'm aware that we, so maybe also to um, offer context to how uh, I know each of you or, or the, maybe the ways in which we've encountered each other. Um, so Charles, you and I met um, three years ago, two and a half years ago in Vienna in the context of um, research project and, and workshop and um I remember that we had some really 
wonderful conversations or and like meetings of kind of sensitivity and I feel almost I don't know very like moving for me a very moving almost like um meeting of souls or hearts or something like very different information but um yeah very like alivening kinds of conversation and it's actually I'm finding it quite hard to be as articulate as I want to be with because it's coming from a place of feeling um and I've not seen your face on screen at all actually so I haven't seen you in in a few years and um, so it's really exciting to um yeah to be in conversation with you this evening or this morning where you are and Nicole Nicole and I met recently through um a kind of um a uh not really a scheme but a um we're kind of match made together weren't we to, to talk to each other um around uh, experiences of neurodivergence and of making and i think as we've spoken in our in our sessions um recently um what has been so interesting is to feel di differently but similarly to charles a sense that this this person might have quite different life experience but i think there's a curiosity for ways of knowing and um and and a sensitivity to um for structures and layers of ways of knowing which i also feel in my practice um so that's why i've asked you both to be here with me in this conversation um and then i'll just say something about my background for anyone who's listening who doesn't know me so I am working out of London, UK. Um, my practice is within is within dance and and performance making, um, but more and more it involves what I think of as creating, um, I'd say, visual cultures. So I'm increasingly concerned with um, space design, costume design, and fabrication. Um, bringing um a kind of yeah it feels like a, a a full like rhythmic and spatial um creation into being rather than only being concerned with um the material which is um is is the moving body and its relations and my background is also in psychology um i'd say cognitive psychology so i'm very interested in processes of attention and of learning um and how we experience those differently depending on the spaces we're in, the context we're in, and how um, those uh, processes inform my thinking about what might be going on for audiences and visitors. Um, so for me, that manifests often in thinking about um, a kind of what I think of as a sort of spatial rhythm. So, um, can be kind of illusion or um, uh, yeah, ca camouflage, processes of, of camouflage or um, synchronicity, sim symbiosis, um, auditorily, or orally, orally with an AU, um, around processes of like mishearing is also very interesting and what's happening cognitively. Um, yeah, and most recently, and and the the frame that we're talking in in at the moment is around a project of mine that I initiated, which is called Satellizer, 
um, satellites at a dance for the gallery. And that would bring me to mention the spiral. Um, so Satellizer is um, a performance situation for gallery spaces whereby the, the dancers, the performers who we call co-workers, because we're, we're co-working, we're engaged in a kind of labor, are moving and speaking. And we have a spatial orientation, which is, I'm doing this gesture of my hand, which is of, um, we're spiraling actually. And we're also changing our orientation within the spiral according to where the visitors are in the room. So it's very subtle at first, but when there are many bodies in the space doing that, it, it's, um, it's uh, yeah, it's like an amplified kind of um, spatial relation. And I know this is where, um, well, this is one of the reasons that I was curious to, to speak more of Charles was we spoke, I don't know if you remember, it would maybe be interesting to hear your memory of a conversation we had in Vienna where I think we were talking about um, space and relationality. And I mentioned a spiral and you were talking about um, a spiral in, was it ceremony? Yeah, uh, it's so interesting to hear you um, relate um, some of the aspects of your work, especially in um, your approach to the design of space, because that to me is very, very interesting, very stimulating. And um, although maybe it's not necessary for us to, or for myself to try to recall the nuances of our conversations, as you know, the, the, the quality of conversations, like even like we're having now are, um, you know, um, perhaps best experienced and sometimes, um, you know, kind of remembered as something quite different, quite interesting. Um, one thing I do remember about our conversation is the um, particular um, pathways towards experience and knowledge. And that in some of the communities that I've worked with and in my own community, there are preferred ways that perhaps maybe a person, individual, or um, community would engage with a person who was seeking um, a relationship to knowledge. And so one of the ones, the spiral is, is one of the preferred possibilities, so a kind of elliptical um, pathways, which is, you know, um, quite fascinating in relation to your project that the spiral and the elliptical pathways are very, very interesting pathways for observation. So in the communion, and I remember from our conversation, I, I was thinking about how to share because in many ways we are journeying through as artists, also as um, kind of dedicated research people as we are have a fascination for um, ideas to be able to share um, insights into how people might be observing and gathering and collating information. So um, as I remember, and this is still important for me now, is that let's say in um, my own case of the aspirations that I have held for most of my artistic career is to be able to merge some of my own kind of creative um, pathways with ones of my community. So one of the things I found out 
um, from my community and um, in a really gentle way is that the direct pathway is not so useful. <laughs> and, and mainly because there's a, it doesn't give people enough time to, to kind of see you or to see how you're approaching. So in a way, um, the arrival is quite a difficult thing to negotiate. So I, I started to think about that because a direct pathway, sometimes you can't really appreciate how someone is arriving to something. And, and it's, it's visual, yes, but it's also about um, um, the possibility of negotiation because it's hard to negotiate if someone's coming directly at you. And so that sometimes people, they don't have the time, you know, to, um, well, um, sometimes respond, sometimes um, make a decision of how they'd like to relate. So what I found out and with some suggestion is that maybe a spiral pathway or an elliptical pathway, and that may not be necessarily a, a spatial thing. It's also about how you approach your arrival. Say as a person who has the aspiration to gather something. So as a gatherer, the kind of internalized kind of dialogue that you may have with space and say the landscape that you're wandering. So we have the sayings called hikoi te whenua. It really means walking the territory, walking the land. That also can be an internal experience as well. So internally, and it's really fascinating that you've said this about the work itself and how people can oscillate or shift their perspectives within the pathway. That's really interesting because that's also somehow how I was encouraged when I was a younger man to understand what I could, my internal dialogue, what I could be doing as I was um, attempting to, to walk the land. So the best example that was given to me is, um, was to say like, um, and the koru is our name for the spiral. We were all nodding along so vigorously there. Of course, our, our um, audience can't, can't um, see the, the resonance of uh, maybe the, the recognition or the, the interest. Um, Nicole, did you want to add something that I saw you particularly... I don't know if I want to add anything. I just, everything you said, Charles, I resonated with. And I might not use the same language to describe what you're describing, um, but I felt it. I, I understood what you were saying. And I think that's pretty cool. There's a mutual understanding here. Janine brought us together. Thank you. It's... Some, something um, about the the sense that I have that the the spatial the organization how it um, is tethered intimately to ways of thinking and a, an approach not only that we might enact but that we might also take when we're um, I was going to say not in movement but of course that doesn't exist we're we're always in movement. Um, I was thinking too, picking up on some things that you said, Charles, about how, how the spiral has worked um, and supported my kind of 
thinking in the sense, and it's it's similar actually to, to you in, in gathering, which is actually offering some relief from a certain expectation that one should already know and you should just be able to kind of go for it and put your thinking or your movement or your desire or your question or your money or <laughs> whatever it is, you should just be able to put it out there, right? And 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 in a transactional way, maybe get something back. And it has this kind of um, this back and forth, um, which feels maybe not binary, but it has a rhythm that is less. I'm not say not necessarily less interesting to me, but it's one that feels has less possibility of kind of the generative. Whereas when you um, talked about spiraling the land, I really had the sense of the possibility that you would cover maybe some of the same ground always from a different orientation, because that's what you can do within a spiral. Um, and so the sense of how that might relate to our thinking and how we might approach um, thinking feels to me very intimate. Um, so anecdote, um, I spent six months living in Venice in 2013 and Venice is a city that people love and don't necessarily know very well. You know, you have a, you have an impression of it sensorially. It's very strong. Um, a lot of images and when one, when the tourists, when many people are first there, I think the, the strategy to deal with what I experienced as a kind of brain or intestine-like um, structure of Venice within the hard bounds of um, the edges, like really like the skull or um, like a skeleton, which is the water, which is the stone, People take the same pathways to go from here to here. You go the same route because you'll get lost otherwise. So you, you keep laying down the same routes in order to understand like maybe where you're going. And that works to a point. But really to cover distance and navigate Venice, you need to be working with curves and you need to detach from a way of, I think, a way of thinking that has like kind of cardinality like maybe it's useful to know north, south, east and west. Um, but when you're in it, my experience was a bit like being in a kind of video game where you can't really see it from above the whole structure. You're just in the coding of it. You're in the maze and you don't quite know what's going to happen in front of you until you're there because it's so dense. And through the months of living there, and um, discovering different kind of spiraling, curving routes that I could take to take me to different places, I started to find a lot of support in thinking about how I think. Um, so it wasn't that it was new, it was just I started to understand that there's um, a kind of architecture or kind of organisation that I'm experiencing physically through navigating this city that's making sense of how my brain works <laughs> um, in terms of sometimes strange connections or um, surprising things kind of turning up because I might not um, be thinking about what the person in conversation with me thinks I'm thinking about um 
So I wondered if that is something that any of you can um, relate to, because it struck me as, yeah, we talked a bit about architecture earlier and, and how space relates to thinking is, um, it feels very intimate to me. Yeah, um, there's so much there I want to touch upon. I don't think my brain can organize my thoughts enough to do that. But um, the words iterative and generative came up for me while I was listening to you. And it, those are words that I would use in my design process um, or my design research process. And um, I would say that in those, also my choreographic process, um, and in those like creative practices and um, I guess more formalized practices of research as well, I, I never know where I'm going. I just am going and I like to, I like to make sure I'm never a step ahead of myself where I'm not telling myself this is where I want to end up because I think that I can miss a lot of opportunities along the way. Um, and I, it also, it reminds me of when I am setting choreography on dancers and I do a lot of spatial patterning, patterning um, just because um, I started choreographing when I was studying physics and my um, mentor at the time really uh, encouraged me to use, to draw on my physics knowledge to um, help my creative practice. But I, I will often show my dancers what I call floor plans <laughs> in my architecture brain. Um, and I'll say that you're going from this point to that point or whatever is going on and they'll they'll ask for, they want definitive answers to questions like, how am I getting from here to there? Or how long do you want me to take to get from here to there? And in some cases I do have answers for that depending on what I've decided to be iterating on um, and thinking about. But a lot of times I don't like answering those questions for my dancers because I want them to figure out their own way of relating to the piece and to the other dancers who are learning the same choreography and theory, but each dancer who does the same movement can feel it completely different. And I like to be able to play with that subtleness and relationality in, in space through my choreography. Um, I think I'll leave it at there for now. <laughs> Thank you, Nicole. That's really um, fascinating for me because there's there's something in there that I find is a correlation between what Janine was talking about and what you're talking about. And I think if um if I was to apply it to perhaps a form of experiential learning that I might have accumulated over the years of maybe. Um, uh, if I can kind of put it in, into things like like travel, because uh, often um, my aspiration to travel has never been for a vacation or a holiday. It's always been with work. And so 
work is associated to um, the relocation of my ability to understand where I'm at. So in a way, it's a kind of a location of, um, of how I may adapt to um, not being in a place, but more about how I'm observing a space, a place, yeah? So one of the things that are really interesting about that is being a, over the years been a constant traveler. <laughs> um, I have an uneasy relationship but by the way that I um, approach being in places. So one of them is that um, they're kind of like, uh, how do you say, like a paradox or um, kind of um, thing like that. So like from a cultural perspective, I was um, kind of led through this thing that it's really good you, when you are away, it's, you're practicing to be a visitor. So being a visitor is quite a different kind of process. So, and in our, our culture, a visitor is a bird. You know, that's all. That's our name for it. And manu is a bird. Manu manuhiri is a visitor. So a bird has a certain type of approach. You know, like two places. So it's encouraged that if you want to be able to be in other places, you have to first learn how to be a good visitor. So that's interesting. Um, the other thing which I found quite hard sometimes is that when you're in a new place, you have this thing like if you're having trouble locating yourself, you have to kind of stand in the place where you're at. And that for me is also another form of contradiction because it's a form of occupation. So you've got to occupy the place that you're at. So, and, and that's a kind of contradiction for me because to be a good visitor and to occupy they're, they're like um, cultural and, and, and political kind of forms of resistance. So I, I would like say, so maybe as an artist, it might be preferable <laughs> for me to have a feeling of, um, you know, what's kind of a softer approach would be maybe to inhabit. But because I, know, I don't know the place and it doesn't know me, I have very almost an impossible task to inhabit a new place. So the, um, the beginning of that process would be to occupy. And occupation for me is a very, very historically, culturally, politically, a very difficult thing to do. So as an artist, it's almost the antithesis of being sensitive to occupy space. And that means too that, what does that mean? You know, like armies do that, you know, conquerors do that as well. Um, people who want to establish power occupy. So um, part of engaging with that um, proposal that you're talking about, Janine, is a way to soften the idea of what that might mean. So a form of occupying the space is to get a map of the city to follow the, the pathways of how that city was actually conquered or occupied by design, you know, town planning, all these types of things, all the things that are kind of written over that city or and over other people's um, ideas of the city, other histories and things like that. So it's, it's quite complicated. And I, I think, like, from my perspective, when I was hearing what you're sharing, Janine, I think that the first thing that I do to resist that is that I don't want to have a map. And uh, 
I don't like doing that. I regret it sometimes because years later I forget where I've been in the city and I wish I had made a little, you know, thing. But at the time, I prefer, and in a way it's quite strange, I trust in the fact that that my relationship to that place or that city is being grown um, step by step, moment by moment, and even the seconds and the days go by. And probably it's more than a mental map. It's something about there's a, um, a new landscape walking inside of me while I'm walking inside of it. So that's, yeah, that's... Um, and these abilities to um, shift some of the harder kind of pathways of negotiation, especially of cities, is a really good thing. So I found it very useful because it also um, helps calm down my feelings of, um, you know, having um, more impact in a place. So having less impact is quite a good thing because it means then that you can see, hear, and even taste other things that you might not if you are following a plan. So yeah, like what you're talking about, Nicole, I really understand that as a very, very important and um, kind of advantage to have because it means that there is a more open plane of possibility. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting um, hearing everyone's relationship to space, essentially, is I think that uh, maybe at least here in the States, the general population doesn't consider how their bodies relate to space. And I think that's, I can't imagine not, not considering my body in that way, but it works for some people. Um, and I would say even less so is there people who are conscious of their, their relationship to space and thinking through how we can affect that relationship. I have met very few people who think about these things. So this is really exciting. Um, and I also just um, wanted to touch upon like the plan of the city as a map um, it's really interesting because it wasn't until the 19th century, and don't quote me on this, I could be off, but I think it's around the 19th century, the end of the 19th century, when hot air balloons were invented, that we first started seeing bird's eye views of the city. So cities existed before then and people existed before then and people existed in cities before then and they navigated in cities before then. So it's just interesting how technology has affected this way of thinking. Um, and I mean, obviously, especially with things in VR and AR that are going on right now, technology affects our relationship with space. Um, yeah, I just, so many thoughts are going in my head. <laughs> well, I think we've got, um, we've got orientation in the room and sort of the difference from the kind of being within and, and what both Charles and I spoke about, which is a kind of unfolding, um, building your own 
um, sense of the place as you go, you go with, rather than the kind of above and then trying to get in, get in it, <laughs> to be in the the map from above whilst being in. Um, we've got mentioning of, of technology and, and that history. We've got um, whiteness and settler um, colonization is in the room um, and um, con control our, um, what I felt in my body as like um, rooting in or sort of bed fixity, bedding down. Um, I think we have um, indigenous uh, ways of knowing and, and their erasure in what Nicole is talking about, a little bit about um, how people in the States, maybe in general, and I would say not even in the States, I'd say like in many, many places, um, we, we maybe, we, it's not even a statement, it's, just, it's a question around what is our embodied relation to the spaces we move through and the histories of our embodied relations in places. Um, especially when those are histories of uh, taking and imprinting and like imprinting sameness, 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 sameness and destroying um, uh, yeah, ways of knowing that or compromising ways of knowing which are so much more um, holistic. I mean, there's much more to say, but like I'm, I'm trying to bring to words like images that I'm feeling like I'm feeling a lot in images actually in this conversation, which is the other thing I wanted to say, um, which was how amazing it is to have Charles speak about the visitor as bird. And that for me, what Charles did when he spoke was an equation around what it is no it's an equation right it which is another way to say metaphor it's just the way that I think of it is equations I think and Nicole knows this I think in a sense of equations like things have space and they have weight and there's a dynamic relation and and the bird the image of, of the bird because it's in time because the bird is moving because the bird disappears so there's unknown activity which is also part of the equation of being the visitor there's also play. Um, yeah, I wanted to just draw attention to the richness of um, imagery and equational thinking in helping us, all of us, to find perhaps different ways to think about very modern concerns like how to travel with humility and dignity and respect and conscientiousness. And I think you said ethically, perhaps. Maybe, yeah. Um, so those are just some of the things that I'm hearing in this conversation so far. Yeah, I, I, I want to say that um, my research group, we submitted a paper to a conference this summer in the human-computer interaction uh, space, and we got rejected in a nice way, but basically the people in the computer space were like, you need to define what embodiment is for us. And I, I was just like, how do you not know what embodiment is? And I, 
I guess if you've never been embodied before, you might need a definition of it. Um, or if you're used to working with computers and you sometimes use that word to describe a computer, I don't, I don't know. But I also wanted to add another thing on imagery and maps. Um, and I learned this just last semester, I finished my last semester of grad school, um, that map making started in colonial Egypt. Um, and it only started because the colonists wanted to make sure that everyone was staying on their correct parcel of farming land because that was how the colonists made money. And so it's just, it's interesting that the imagery and like the bird's eye view of the city, when put into a human brain, has created the opposite of what a bird is in space. And maybe it's that we don't understand what embodying a bird is, um, and not we, I mean humanity as a whole. I think we probably understand that or can try to understand that. Um, but yeah, I, I'm rambling now. I'll stop. <laughs> no, and I think Charles wants to speak, but when you, you were speaking, Nicole, I was just thinking, yeah, there's no money in spirals. <laughs> spirals are hard to control because it's all about shifting orientation and um if you're if you're spiraling whether it's a smaller spiral or a larger spiral you um, charles will charles will have more information for this but i in the work in satellizer the way that i feel it feels related to like um kind of a, a humility with what anyone knows and that there are multiple access points with a spiral and it's not about um kind of moving horizontally into another knowledge field based on um having stacked up a load of qualifications maybe or followed like one line um it's about following um it feels like following interest following which, is, which relates a bit to how we're talking about cities. Um, I think curiosity is there. I think playfulness is there. Um, I think responsiveness to whatever the environment is and being able to change orientation, change speed, change direction, because you're not locked into a kind of, um, mm, I'm thinking of cars on a highway now. <laughs> you know, there's like one track and then it's like danger if you fall off the track or you have to, you know, there's just braking, there's braking, there's swerving. There isn't the space for um, really moving uh, according to your curiosity. You're on a track and that's that's what we agree to. That's the script and that's the score. Whereas the spiral orientation in the gallery context of Satellizer, as we, as we perform this dance phrase, supports a way of thinking and a way of paying attention to who's in the room who's coming and going and exactly as Charles said giving time to to um allow thinking to emerge and be changed by who is there 
and also who is seeing us and how we're seeing. And so there's this, um, yeah, it feels to me also as a, an orbiting. And I, I think one of the interests for me in that, and we've touched on it already, is also kind of pedagogical in a way, like, um, if I was to offer sort of an imprint for how I would like to learn things or how I would like to support others to learn, it would be somehow with more of a spiral and less kind of axes and grids. I find that very fascinating. And um, just to um, return back to the opening kind of idea that I was sharing about recalling our conversation, um, that my personal um, uh, experience of engaging in the spiral in, in my life's journey, you know, that's quite a um, specific thing. So in a way, a spiral allows us to have um, associations to, to that kind of um, individual um, kind of journey. And then a spiral allows that, um, in my context, the spiral journey is a way to be observed by the things that are outside your journey. So one of the things about the journey towards knowledge is that if I was to identify that a piece of knowledge that I was journeying towards, it might be a song or it might be a piece of poetry that sits within a certain community or, or that individual that may be my perceived um, destination. But the, what the spiral does, it, it, it doesn't place your emphasis on the destination, it's on the pathway. And that means then that perhaps the, because the de this is where desire comes in, you know, like because it's about what you desire to be able to fulfill and you might not, you might not actually fulfill it. But um, the thing I would think is, is that, when you, uh, and it's something about learning, and it's interesting you talk about pedagogy, it's that that learning environment, you know, like because it's so aspirationally orientated, it's about acquisition and it's about, you know, kind of like coming to terms with the way you learn or the way you observe. And on that spiral pathway, that knowledge or that, say that in my case, that person becomes the focus of how do you, do you get there? But what I've learned is, is that the spiral gives everyone a chance to see how you journey. They're, they're looking at you, how you walk, how you sleep, how you wander, how you, you deal with the encounters that you do on your journey. And that's an indication of how you are earning, in a way, a kind of respectful observation of these possibilities. Anyway, so that in, in that what I wanted to say, it's not about me or my journey, it what what the spiral could represent in its different forms. Yeah. So I just wanted to bring up this other thing, which is in the community we talk about, which is a, a possible observation of what happens when that gets um, the reciprocity process of spiraling. So the reciprocity process, which is firstly um, premise on the idea of inclusion. And so that the same pathway could be traversed by many. 
you know, that, so that, that's interesting. So in reciprocity and in inclusion, that could be talking about what's driving our um, desire, you know, and desire can be also too about um, when engaging in, in um, embodiment, it also means all of the different types of things that we desire as well. So not only about intellectual knowledge, but it could be about sensuality and all of these types of things. So one of the things then in the beginning of shifting your relationship to the spiral is that your, your um, experience becomes somewhat like the conduit. The journey becomes the conduit. Your body, your embodiment becomes the conduit of the desire that you're working towards. And that means then that this initializing of a very, very lateral, very kind of landscape-orientated experience can then be a conduit and then community, that's a conduit between the earth and the sky. So it's not vertical, it is the spiral in relation to vortex-orientated things. So the vortex can be, although there's many forms of it, you know, like tornadoes and stuff, but if we were to just think about how to um, address direct pathways, you know, before I was saying that somehow sometimes direct pathways are a little bit impolite, you know, because <laughs> you don't give people a chance to, to think. So these, you know, kind of, and it's a bit your, like your car analogy, you know, like you get these um, kind of corridors of things. Well, in a, in a conduit spiral where you have um, a, a wide starting point and you move towards a focus point, or you have a focus point, you move to a wide point. This is the idea of a wide spiral that spirals up towards a focus point, or you have one that's the opposite where you it spirals down towards a focus point. And that's where you get a, an appreciation of different uh, pathways, direct pathways, but they take a tangential or a, a spiral or an elliptical thing. And that's shifting that lateral perception towards something of a conduit-orientated thing between connecting between atmospheres, qualities, volumes, and um, that then can be, you can start to have a relationship, say like if your, if your spiral is your relationship to creativity or um, sharing or collaboration, you can then start to have a relationship with things like the sublime, you know, because it's connected to, to desire. Yeah. I want to bring in a little bit of the mathematical perspective, if that's cool. <laughs> um, and this is all, I, all of this is connected to what both of you had said. Um, I might need some help remembering how it's connected. <laughs> um, but these are all notes I took while you were both talking. So, um, I don't know if you guys know of the Fibonacci series or fractals, essentially, um, which are spirals. Um, I, I love the Fibonacci series. It's my favorite, it's one of my favorite mathematical phenomenon. Um, and we've used the words orbiting and ellipse, which are also things that happen in nature, uh, in the solar system. Um, and reflexivity and relationality and reciprocity. Um, it's all part of the Fibonacci 
series. It's all part of what a fractal is. Um, if you've ever gone on one of those websites where you zoom into a fractal indefinitely and it's just the same thing over and over again, um, that also that reminds me of the um, the lateral perception and the vertical perception you were talking about, Charles. Um, and I also somehow connected into these ideas of nature and spiraling is, I was reminded of um, wave particle duality in quantum physics, um, which is basically that a photon, which is the smallest unit of light, is both, acts as both a wave and a particle at the same time. And physicists discover this through the double slit experiment, which basically they set up uh, a light source and uh, a piece of paper, or a piece of a wall or something that had two slits in it and another wall behind that. And they were recording where, how the light was um, distributed on the back wall after passing through the two slits. So when there was no observer, the photon acts as a particle and it gives a, what you would consider a normal distribution of light on just diffuse. Um, but then when you add in an observer to the experiment, the photon behaves like a wave and there is um, interference, constructive and deconstructive interference. So you see wave patterns on the back wall instead of a diffuse pattern. I made a very minor mistake when I was describing the double slit experiment, which is actually not minor for physicists, but um, it should actually be that the double slit experiment shows that a photon behaves like a particle with an observer, and then without an observer, it behaves like a wave. Um, and I've always been fascinated by this. Um, this was the reason I went into physics and I learned that this was not what we talked about for four years in the physics degree. Um, but I also, I think that that's all also spiraling, rela related to spirals in that you can see different perspectives in different places of the spiral and you can see different versions of the spiral that you're in based on where you are in the spiral. And I think that can be taken both physically um, as well as like our thought processes. And that somehow connects to what you both said, if you guys want to jump in. <laughs> Nicole, was there also something about um, the reef? the reflexivity or the interference or the, the subject object, the visitor. The visitor actually has been a theme so far in this conversation, re realizing now. Um, was there something else there that you were picking up on that you wanted to? I think that um, I was thinking about how in, in a fractal pattern or in the Fibonacci series, you are constantly seeing the same thing. It's reflexive, it's self-referential. Um, and I think that 
the three of us are talking about this as part of our creative practices. Um, we are not thinking directional in one direction. Uh, we're thinking more of more broadly, like a spiral. Um, and I don't have a definitive point to make because I'm spiraling on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that's, um, I just wanted to ask uh, Nicole, because it's, what's interesting for me is that um, your introduction of um, reflexivity, which is, you know, that with the fractal, and I was fascinated about, and I don't think that you need to, to do this, but I'm fascinated to see how you position in that kind of um, possibility the, um, and it's a difficult one, the introduction of the observer within that changes, you know, the, the particle to a wave. And for me, that's interesting. So because we are also talking a lot about observation, but also we are also in a place where our, the, the efforts of our research and of our work is observable, you know, like, so um, big question, sorry. Um, but in that context, is it a force or is it an intervention? What is in your context? What is the introduction of the observer? Are, are you talking about in like my creative practice or in the uh, double slit experience, experiment? Yeah, in the double slit experience, but maybe that then can be referenced um, in a way to your own creative okay. practice. Can you ask one more time so I'm thinking in that mindset? <laughs> Oh yeah, um, maybe in the context of the double slit um, experiment, the the introduction of the observer, I find that really fascinating because it, that's something that makes a particle or make it change from a particle to a wave. Um, so I, I immediately was thinking, um, what is that observer? I'm not sure. So I'm just thinking, like, is there any way that you could um, open up that a little bit? What's an observer in relation to that experiment with the fractal? Yeah. So, well, in the experiment, an observer, or uh, when the observer is not there, it's the experiment is happening in a vacuum, um, and they go to check the distribution pattern of the photons after they've put the light through the two splits the two slits and then the observer is in the room for the next version um, while the light is passing through the double slit. Um, and this, this is what basically created the whole field of quantum physics and quantum physics is all, all, there is no definitive answers in quantum physics. It's all about dualities and fields and matrices. Um, because before quantum physics and before this experiment, only classical physics existed, which would be like uh, Newton's laws, um, an object in motion stays in motion, where you can, you can definitively solve the system for a certain variable. But when you get into the quantum world, you can't definitively solve for one variable. You're, you're working with, you're actually working with waves um, and wave equations. So you're, 
you're never getting an exact answer to anything, if that makes any sense. It makes a lot of sense because I would think that somehow, like sometimes if I'm working, you know, and working could mean um, doing nothing, <laughs> but then also doing everything that's possible, you know, if I'm in that place where I'm um, seeking some kind of um, uh, kind of like guidance or possibility of an idea or if I have something that I'm proposing within that moment, um, there's always something that comes as, a, as an arrival outside of what I'm doing. And in, and in that way, I feel observed. And so like the, the, the role of the observer for me is quite a, it's a mysterious and fascinating one. And it, it kind of seems like around us are many kind of um, possible or even kind of tendril orientated connectors that connect and, and, and then um, detach, you know, and then in that way, I feel that's some kind of momentary form of observation through some kind of tendril thing. Now that's getting really in a different place because that's not something that's explainable um, it's something that's not necessarily observable, but you can measure some kind of shift and change in something that might happen in your work, which at that time might not be explainable. So, I mean, I'm, I just want to say thank you because to me, in, in relation to what you've been talking about, it does actually open up the possibility too that the idea of inquiry um, could be a, a series of reframing as opposed to um, the continuing of seeking answers. Do you know what I mean? That that's very useful. Yeah. Well, and that's how that's what I learned in design school was that you're iteratively asking questions. You're never looking for an answer, which is maybe why I moved from quantum to design. <laughs> um, but I mean, I thank you too, because you've given me a new way to think through language, through these, these ideas, um, because I, like Janine, I, I think in pictures. I, I'm always doing translations in my brain when I'm trying to speak. Um, and I mean, you, you have to be able to communicate through language in some sort to make work with other people in this reality. Um, I guess that maybe that's not true. You can, you can get things done without speaking. So I, I take that back. Um, but I, I'm just not very good at the whole language part of describing the things I'm thinking through. And oftentimes I run into situations of misunderstanding um, when I'm trying to describe these things to someone else. And I can see that I'm not getting my point across and that there is a misunderstanding, but they, the other party can't necessarily see that. And so I know that it's on my end that I need to do some work if I want them to be able to understand me better. And I think you've really given me a good way to start doing that better. <laughs> 
I, I just wanted to follow up on that because I think that's a, it's a very confronting thing as well because there is, um, there's so much value placed on, on the ability to articulate and to have an understanding or a command of language or languages, you know. And I think that getting back to your idea about your proposal um, and that the response was, can you define embodiment? So, like, you know, that's, like, you know, a very difficult thing. However, that's also to um, the problematic, you know, kind of nature of languages generally, you know, like, like that. So um, to maybe give an example of that, my first language is English. My second language is my um, Indigenous language. And so within the possibilities of um, my imaginings, that I'm constantly going through this process of internal and externalizing um, the ability to um, move and weave and cross, you know, um, translate between what I articulate and then necessarily what I understand and, and um, desire to, to do that. And when I'm working with uncertain ideas that I'm trying to find the the things that I can share the ideas with. And sometimes they're in one language and not in another. And then, of, of course, then we have embodiment, which is another series of um, matrices and um, possibilities. So I guess the other thing would be is about, you know, is translation something that we should do or you know like is there other ways that we can seek um well maybe understanding's not necessarily a good term but it might be that the people that we are working with um you know like that idea is like if you try to make something understood to someone else it might be just really there to reinforce your own understanding that that you've articulated something, you know, like perhaps it might be better to um, find out later on how, how they interpret, you know, like, so that's one of the big battles that I've had a lot of my life is the difference, like, like one example, um, sorry, I'm raving now, sorry, um, is that there's a big difference to say in, in my um, Indigenous language, what it means to how it sounds. And so somehow the sound of the language can be a, a much more important, you know, kind of experience than what, it, what the collection of those sounds mean in a word or a phrase. So in that way, I, I realised that the, the, the language itself has a whole other body of sensations, um, you know, stimulations because of how it sounds. So anyway, that was just something that I was thinking about then. I I want to jump in because I had a really, like, um, visceral, very beautiful, like, um, react, reaction, like, to, to what you were both speaking about. And I, I was realising, um, and now I'm also, like, 
going to spiral in my thinking to try to like articulate myself, which I know has permission here. So that's beautiful. Thank you. Um, so the, the feeling I had was of recognizing really clearly that as a person, um, so Asperger's person, that I think I'm so attracted to being in, in communion with people um, for whom English, so English is my mother tongue, so for whom English is not their first language, um, or who have um, very different, um, often like cultural backgrounds to my own, because there is for both parties already a huge experience of um, being in this kind of translation, which means that there isn't um, an expectation of being immediately understandable nor understood. And so there is a huge empathy for ways in which different systems of thinking, whether it's language or like space design or drawing or whatever it is, um, are doing something and many things, but nothing is like the one <laughs> truth or something. And I, I just really felt that in my body very clearly when, when you were speaking, Charles, and it, it's actually yeah it's very helpful for me in thinking about um yeah my own processing and yeah it, it gives a bit of relief because I've been thinking recently a lot like in relation to what Nicole said about being neurodivergent and realizing in encounters often with people who um experience themselves or or whatever as as neurotypical is what we're saying we're saying these things and I'm already like that they're, they're too that's too binary but for now temporarily like allow um something a bit binary um so Nicole was saying that she in an encounter um would realize that the other person is not understanding her or that she's not understanding the other person but the but that other party would not be realizing the same thing and that she as the neurodivergent person then has to do the work of fostering and trying to develop um, ways, different ways of understanding. And that for me is like a crux of um, a huge problem in how neurodivergence and neurodiversity is understood as being like a lack or a deficit because in this case, the neurotypical, and I'm doing like air quotes, person doesn't understand the amount of labor that's happening in order for the, the thing to go well and actually there's a huge amount of um negotiation which I feel very physically like even thinking about posture and that there is no stillness there's always slight motion and adjust adjustment and I've been thinking of this you know I'm in a position of leadership in in the project and how to um be with my own process, how to be in translation, how to hold space uh, with people with many different lived experiences in the room, different ages, different cultural backgrounds, different languages, genders, sexualities, many, many things. And, and sometimes in, yeah, sometimes in my life in general, I have this feeling of like, it's as if everyone else um, can like sight read music and they just know how to like match up somehow the right sounds that they're able to make with like what's expected whereas it's like I have to learn in body by heart all of the different like songs or scripts for different occasions and then if I'm surprised which I sometimes am I have to like recombine things in different creative ways 
And so it's not as clear or as binary as that, but I think there is in this conversation something happening around like greater space um, that can be opened where there can be, again, the language in English is, is very, it's about lack, it's about holes, it's about gaps. <laughs> but where maybe things don't match up and and maybe they're, as I think Charles was saying, one can lean into um, experience or the journey and maybe have some relief from um, the explanation or of seeking to be understood. Because And actually that's where I feel most um, connected with my whole self as a younger self and as I age when I have that sense that I can lean into and work to um, build ways of being in the world which support um, yeah more the way that I'm processing experiencing and doing less of the trying to just match up and fit fit in so I've also done a massive spiral. Um, maybe that's why we're here. Maybe it's okay. There's something very interesting too. Like maybe I, I wanted want to share a couple of things about um, about some language from from what really helps me understand that kind of um, negotiation between my experience of English and my experience of um, Te Reo Māori, which is um, um, my uh, Indigenous language. And I'll just give two examples because it's quite interesting because they allow the possibility, uh, you know, to like, to use the term, like to, to lean into something without the pressure of possibly having an explanation to why that thing might be. And one of them is... Um, is marama, and um, marama uh, can be in two different things. One is um, uh, marama, and then marama. Yeah. Um, so marama is the name of the moon, <laughs> and um, when someone wants to uh, or engaging in um, conversation, and there's a little bit of a misunderstanding, they will say. And what that means is, did that light ref reflect on you? And you say, I, hetika he marama. So that I, un I understand in my way because the, the, the moon is shining on me. Do you know what I mean? So that, that's a very beautiful way because sometimes it's hard to say, look, you know, I can tell you don't understand. You know, like, or do you understand? And you can either say yes or no, or like I'm confused. But in, a, in that way, you can choose to say, oh, I'm like the moon, you know, which is quite lovely. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful way to do that. And so in many ways, one of maybe one of the goals of all languages is to find the, the, the types of other possibilities uh, and the other one I wanted to share, which um, is a very old term, which is called porangi, and that has um, now become a, a modern type of term 
for someone who is um, suffering from um, um, mental uh, kind of momentary lapse, yeah, or a mental condition. And that's usually around something about um, uh, a neurodiversity or the things that we're talking about now. Um, it's shifting now because people are starting to use that term in a very different way, which is so good because it's more becoming more aligned to the more archaic way that the term was used. And so in a way, it's, it's interesting because how language can be um, gently pried away from perhaps um, a more kind of modern take on something like, so that term was used, say, through um, the health professionals, um, the medical kind of approach to it, because it kind of became the, um, the term used for people who were experiencing um, bipolarism or schizophrenia or something like that. And that became like, a really derogatory term, like to say someone who is in a, a really um, difficult place psychologically, you know, and also too, like, or, or else the beginning of dementia or um, they're, they're crazy, porani. Then um, people don't like that term, but they prefer to use it in its old term. So, anyway, um, the other way to look at it is that poor is um, our name for the night, yeah? Rangi is the name of the sky, which is daylight. So when you, in the olden days, you would describe someone who, um, you know, like they are there, they're between um, the night and the day. So they're in actual fact in a, um, a process of kind of like between darkness and light or the break of day or twilight or dawn. You know, they're at that, that, that kind of um, liminal kind of place. So porangi is really a way to describe someone who is in the process of not what people would consider to be either night or day. So they're indistinct kind of places. And that's how people were um, supported. And also, too, that was also about um, extended periods of grief. People would be just, you know, um, described as being in a, in a process of borangi between the night and the day. In that way, it's a really, um, it shows that in some of the languages that there's these um, really important associations to natural phenomena like night and day, um, dawn and dusk, daybreak, the moon and stars, and there are other, but those are two um, examples of um, how our language can be softened around a very, very um, like uh, severe kind of societal reaction to uh, unfamiliarities in, in, in territories. I, I'm so reminded, Charles, of, of uh, hearing you speak. Uh, this is one of the things that you, you spoke about to me before. And we talked, I think, about perhaps the language of diagnosis, how uh, rich, um, I don't, yeah, I don't know, but in your language and I, I maybe in, in other um, indigenous languages, how rich the language is in connection, as you say, to the natural environment and process. Um, 
in in offering um softness it comes back to softness and like and and that ev- every that every experience that feels to me like considered in that language is is part of the world not to be necessarily put aside that there is a that it's all part of the world and um it reminds me of, of, and I think this is also why I, I really love talking to you today and, and to Nicole too, and 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 years ago in Vienna, because the image I had for myself and that I share with others around any thinking about the kind of uh, medical model of diagnosis is that there's the possibility to think about those words as like um, a window that might shine some light on a situation, but it doesn't have to be everything it can just be um a way of illuminating and maybe there are many windows and there are many sources of of light and that's not maybe the best image but I know that it was one for me that has been um yeah has has it just it feels it feels resonant with the way that you're speaking about language and I'm so grateful um to have this kind of conversation that moves through physics and and a little bit dance and making and um place and language and sort of spiraling together and somehow ending up somewhere unexpected um but that feeling in my body so good so um i'm going to invite if there's any last um things that want to be heard in our space and then i think we'll we'll close for the session I think I just want to say that we talked a lot about nature and I really love nature. So I appreciate that aspect of the conversation too. Yeah, I just want to thank you both for such a great, wonderful exchange. And I think that also too in the the time that we're living in, which is quite extraordinary and also um offering us the possibility to seek different ways of sharing information and experiences. Um, Who would have known really that we could span the globe um, this morning, afternoon or or evening and to be able to find our way to this particular place, which I find really, really um, stimulating. I feel really creatively kind of prepared for my day and I just really want to thank you both. And um, there's one last thing I'd like to share, which I just discovered last night. So it's a kind of quite um, quite a recent thing, which is um, another thing about language. And uh, there was a, a small article that I came across and just to show that, you know, the things that we do, they're, they're not always about the things that have been or, you know, there's, so there's a new um, term that was accepted and created um, within um, the language resurgence in, in Aotearoa, and it's called takiwatanga, uh, and that's a new term, and that's something that's, um, uh, it's not a transliteration of, of anything, and it's a new term that's been accepted within the kind of um, official language things in the government and within the community, and they're using it now, takiwatanga, and that is the new term for the spectrums of autism. Oh, cool. 
Yeah, and so it was um, formulated by a very respected language researcher, and it's loose translation. It means in their own time and space. That's what the literal translation means, in their own time and space. Mm. Yeah, so that's something that I'm just learning about. I'm, I'm really kind of endeavour to um, try to learn a little bit more about what that means. So that's a really fascinating thing in relation to our conversation, that there means that there are so many people in that motion of discovering new processes. Yes, the, the spiral. I love yeah. that. I, I Also because we have this phrase, you know, that someone will get the thing done in their own time or their own space. And I think that is an absolutely beautiful way to end our conversation. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. The Satellizer project is realised using funds from the National Lottery through Arts Council England, Bonnie Bird Choreography Fund and John Elliman Foundation through Continuous Network. Continuous is a partnership between Siobhan Davies Studios and Baltic Centre for Contemporary Art. You can find out more by visiting continuousdance.com.